This morning, please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, starting in verse 11. But the writer of Hebrews is going to enter into a very, very interesting topic. And it's as if he's going to take a pause on his regular topic, and he's going to talk about this topic today. And it's this idea that I'm calling spiritual laziness or lazy listening, we could say. And if you've been with us, he's been talking about at length how Jesus is greater than Aaron as a high priest. And he's introduced this guy, Melchizedek, this priest, mysterious priest from the Old Testament. He shows up in the book of Genesis for just a handful of verses. He meets Abram and he blesses Abram and he's called priest of God most high and Abram gives him a tenth of all and he's gone from the rest of the Bible until you get to the book of Hebrews. And he uses this mysterious figure Melchizedek to make this, honestly, it's a long case. It's going to keep going on through chapter 10 about why Melchizedek matters and why Jesus should be compared to Melchizedek and how he helps and assists us as our greater high priest. So it's a very interesting case he makes. But what I find even more interesting is where we're at today is he's going to take a pause and talk about something special because I think his pastor hat kicks in and he sees a problem in the church he's writing to and he needs to address it. So with that in mind this morning, I hope we can be helped by what he's going to address with his people that will glean truth from this today as well. If you would please stand out of respect for reading of God's word. And I want to read Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11. He says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's pray for a minute. Father God, thank you that I have the privilege to stand and to preach your word. God, I ask that you would remove me out of the way in Christ. You would be glorified and magnified here this morning. Thank you for the ones that were able to make it. Would you bless them for being here? And Lord, I know there are several that have illnesses and things going on. Would you heal them and bring them back safely to us when you can, Lord? Now, please open our hearts and minds to understand what the writer of Hebrews, very important message he had for his people in his day. Would you help us to understand it today, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The title for this message is Avoiding Spiritual Laziness. So this will be part one and we'll do part two next week. So Avoiding Spiritual Laziness. As I said, it's, it's interesting because he takes a pause from his main teaching and he says, I need to address something to you, the, the readers of this letter here. And I would say to, to us here this morning as well, it's, it's no different. And he says, there's, there's a problem that we need to talk about. And it's this idea of, People are becoming spiritually lazy. So the problem then, to introduce it, we'll call it this. The problem is lazy listening. So look back in verse 11, and he introduces what he's trying to address about lazy listening. He says, about this we have much to say. Now about this is what he just got done talking about, which was this guy Melchizedek 
and comparing him to Jesus Christ, or rather saying Jesus comes after the order of this Melchizedek. And if you were with us, to be honest, that was a, a very detailed, it's a very intricate argument. You may have never heard it before. It pulls on a lot of the Old Testament. It could have been new to you, and that's okay. But I just want to point out, to this guy, the writer of this, he thinks it's no big deal because look at what he says here. I have a lot more to say to you about that stuff. But he says the problem is it's hard to explain. Now, it's not hard to explain because the topic is hard to explain. The irony here is, look what he says, it's hard to explain because something's wrong with the listener. He says it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. So the problem he's addressing is lazy listening. He says the hearers here, the readers of this letter, they have a problem. They've become dull of hearing, my translation says. This is the heart of the problem. He wanted to go on, he wanted to say more things about Melchizedek, but he needed to pause for a minute. He says, you know, it, it, there's more truth to glean here, but I just feel like if I keep going, it might be too confusing because the real issue, rather than talking about Melchizedek and Jesus, the issue is let's just talk about are we hearing spiritually properly? He wants to share more truth, but he felt compelled to pause and go into this topic here. So he lets them know, honestly, the issue is his readers, his listeners, the problem is on them. The problem is not the teacher, it's the hearer. It's hard to explain this to them because they're dull of hearing. Now, in the Greek language, the dull of hearing phrase that mine says, yours may say something different, but this become dull of hearing is a verb. And it's an active verb, and that means this. These people have actively engaged in letting themselves become dull of hearing. What I mean is, this did not happen to them simply because of old age. I mean, we say, as you grow older, things break down, right? You may say, I'm losing my eyesight, or I'm hard of hearing, I need hearing aids. That's not what happened to these people. Now, when we say hearing, we're talking spiritually. But he says, you guys have let this happen. You have let yourself become dull of hearing. And so now I'm having to stop what I was wanting to tell you to address this other thing. They've, they've done this to themselves, sort of, is what he's saying to them. Now, what happened is instead of growing forward spiritually, they're growing backwards. And it's causing them to be dull. Now, the word dull is a figure of speech in the language here. And the figure of speech was something like this. It meant that you were lazy in your ears. Lazy in your ears. So it means slow to understand. Not because there's something wrong with your mind. It means slow to understand because you just don't want to. You're, you're tired. You just, you just don't want to put forth the effort to try and comprehend. So, so you're mentally lazy. You just shut down mentally. So these people have become mentally lazy, slow to hear, dull to hear. They became unable then to get the real concepts he wants them to know so they can grow and be helped. So again, I want to stress this. The issue is on these people. They did not grow older and their hearing get worse. They got lazy and their spiritual hearing got worse. I like how the Christian Standard Bible says the phrase. It says they have become too lazy to understand. The New International Version says you no longer try to understand. So again, the burden is on them. It's their problem. 
So what are the symptoms of lazy listening that he's talking about here? These are good things to ask ourselves as we walk through them. So you could ask yourself, how do I know if maybe I've become a lazy spiritual listener to the truth of God? Well, he starts out with saying the first symptom of spiritual lazy listening is you don't know what you should know by now. Now I need to explain this, but you don't know what you should know by now. So if you would here, look at verse 12 now. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So again, I need to explain this phrase because I don't want to give you the wrong idea when I say you, you may not know what you should know by now. Because myself included, so starting with me and to every one of you here as well, we could all say, if we're honest, at some level, if we were more disciplined over the years, we would probably be further along in our walk with the Lord than we are today, myself included. So I'm not saying that you have to look at this phrase, you don't know what you should know by now, and say, well, of course I don't know what I should know because if I had done this years ago or if I had been more focused or more disciplined, we could all say that. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what, what he's talking about. He means you don't know what you should know by now. It means you've had plenty of time as a Christian to learn the basics. You've, you've had plenty of time to get the elementary principles, he calls them, about the Christian faith, about Jesus Christ. You learned them, you should have learned them to the point that you would be able to help someone else understand them. That's his idea, I believe. He says you, there's a level that you should have learned by now because of how long of time that you've been a Christian. And he says you ought to have been teachers by now. That's his idea. Now the word time is chronological time. So when he says by this time, he literally means you have been Christians long enough, one year, five years, 20 years, you've been in the faith long enough, enough time has passed that you should be at a certain level, but you're not there. And the level he explains is, you should be able to teach someone else the basic elementary principles of the Christian faith. They've been Christians long enough to do this, but they've fallen behind. He says because the reality is they need someone else to teach them. And he says, again, the basic principles. They've already learned it before, maybe years ago. They've already been in the church for years. But he says, instead of you being a mentor to a younger brother or sister in Christ, helping them just, just get the basics. We're just talking the foundation. He says you actually are in a situation you need someone else to teach you all over again. Now when he says the basic principles, that literally is meaning this idea of the ABCs, the one, two, threes, the foundational elements of the Christian faith. We're taught the ABCs in kindergarten, at least I hope you were. And why are we taught the alphabet though? We're not taught the alphabet just so you can go through high school and you graduate high school and say, I learned the alphabet. Well, that's great. I'm glad you did. But that's not the point of learning the alphabet is just to learn the alphabet. Why were you taught the alphabet? So you can learn to put those letters together and read words. And then when you read words, you put them together and you read sentences. Then when you read sentences, you're reading books. Now you're able to go to more school or trade schools or you're able to teach yourself now. You're able to grow you're able to do more things. All because back in kindergarten you learned the ABCs. That's the foundational elements. 
And in that sort of a way, he's saying there's a foundational element to Christianity, the basics, the building blocks. And these people should have already mastered that long ago to the point they could explain it to someone else. But they're not there. That's the symptom Hebrews says to watch out for. It would be this question here. Am I lazy in my spiritual hearing? Am I falling behind in my spiritual growth? Ask yourself, have I honestly progressed in my knowledge of God and his word to a reasonable level? I want to stress a reasonable level. I'm not saying you should be a master of it, but to a reasonable level that should be expected based on how long you've been a Christian. It's sort of a a correlation. If you've been a Christian one year, then you should have one year's worth of the basic level. But if you've been a Christian five years, you should probably have more than your first year. And then 10 and 20 and on it goes. Hopefully you, you see the idea here. I don't know how long these people have been Christians. I'm sure it was mixed. But again, he's stressing to them, you guys should be farther along than what you are. Not even masters or gurus, not seminary students or having any kind of level of a degree. None of that really matters. He's just saying you've got to get the basics. So that's very subjective, though, I know. But based on your time as a Christian, and this will be personal to you, personal to me, but based on how long you've been a child of God, based on all sorts of all these variables, the principle would be true for each and every one of us, though. And it's to ask, have I been a Christian long enough to know the basics? And if the answer is yes, then do I know it enough to explain it to someone else who's maybe never heard it before? If it's over a year or two, then... Again, subjective opinion, but I would think, yes, a year or two is enough time to know the basics of the Christian faith. Not everything, we're just talking the basics, the ABCs. He'll give us a list in just a moment. But again, something to think about. Ask yourself, can can I today, the way I am, do I have an ability to teach someone else the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? How to just live the foundations. Not asking that you can sit down and lead a Bible study, Not saying you teach a Sunday school class. That's not what he's saying or what I'm saying at all. Just the basics. Explaining what it means to follow the Lord. If not, today is the day to start thinking about how to get back on path to growth. Because that can be a symptom of lazy listening to God's truth. It's true God gives some, not everyone, the gift of teaching. You could read this verse. says, well, he says you ought to be teachers. And doesn't God only call certain people to be teachers? That's true. But... I don't believe he's talking about the gift of teaching as what what I'm doing now or what a Sunday school teacher would do. That's not what he means. He just means at a basic level, are you able to explain to someone else one-on-one the basic foundation elements of the Christian faith? Could you help someone get started as a Christian? They come to you, they say, hey, you've, you've been a Christian for a while. You say, yeah, I've been in this church five years or eight years or... And they just said, well, what do I do? Just tell me how I get started. I've just accepted the Lord. Where do I go from here? Could you just get them going? So here's the the next symptom of lazy listening to check for. It's immature spiritual diet. He says, again, repeating verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or the words of God. But he says you need milk not solid food. So now he talks about diet. And he says the issue here with these people is their diet's very immature. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This phrase, you need milk, not solid food, is where I'm getting this idea from. 
He says these people should have been at a point in their spiritual development where they can handle spiritual meat, spiritual solid food, the advanced stuff. But he says they're not there. They can't handle it. He wants to give them more spiritual meat, spiritual solids. But he says it it would choke you. You don't even know how to, to chew that and swallow it. You need a liquid diet, spiritual milk. Notice how he explains what he means by milk versus food. He says those who are on milk, he calls them unskilled in the word of righteousness. The word unskilled means they're without knowledge or they're without capacity. Or it can mean they lack proper experience. So what, what does he say they're lacking experience with? Well, they're lacking experience with the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness means the, the message of God's righteousness. But that word righteousness, it doesn't just mean you're saved. It means how to live morally pleasing to God. So we're mostly get, what we're getting at here is the ethical living, the day-to-day choices that you make as a child of God, right versus wrong. So that's his idea here is these people that need spiritual milk, they're spiritually immature, they're dull of listening, and a symptom here is their diet's very immature because I can't give them the meat, the solids, they're on spiritual milk. And he says the, the proof of this is they lack proper experience in just simply being able to live their day-to-day life in a highly ethical fashion before the Lord, making good moral choices as a believer. What's the sign of this immature diet again? He'll go on here. He says it means that a person should be able to handle deeper biblical truths than what they can, but they can't, so they stick with the easy stuff, and they don't ever grow beyond that. They don't ever take in more food and try to develop better. So what happens is they keep growing in their Christian life, but they don't really grow. They just get older, but they don't advance in their abilities. They, they have to stick with this, the milk. They can't have the solid food. Well, what's the way to tell if this is true about my life and your life? We would ask ourselves something like this. How skilled am I at living a virtuous Christian moral life? The day-to-day stuff. How effective are you? at making good moral choices that God would be pleased with? What are my daily moral habits like? Do I have a mind, do I have my mind and my body under control so that I can steer it in a good moral direction? Or has it got me out of control and I'm just following the impulses of my mind and my body? Now look at verse 14, he's going to explain a little further here. He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature means a full-grown person here. A mature adult, we could say. So the mature do something different than the spiritually immature. They have their powers of discernment trained, he says. The New American Standard Version says it this way, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained. That's the phrase I want you to see. They have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the spiritually mature have a keen ability to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong. They have their their powers of discernment, or it's like their spiritual senses, their spiritual sight and smell and taste and hearing. It's as if it's where it needs to be. It's very morally sensitive to making good moral choices before the Lord. It's to have one's faculties trained up to to determine, to distinguish good from evil. Some people call this, it's like your sense organ. You know, we have organs like the heart and the brain and the lungs. 
Well, this word here, when I studied it about this power of discernment idea, someone said in a definition that to some it meant like you had an organ that you can't see. It's, it's your organ of discernment. Your conscience, we might say. So Hebrews says the spiritually mature have proof of their spiritual maturity because their Christian spiritual conscience is very sensitive to sin. They easily see what's right and what's wrong. And not only do they determine right from wrong, but they're more able to overcome sin and more easily able to choose the good. They are presented with challenging ethical choices, but they sense God's wisdom more easily and they know what choice they need to make. So the mature have these powers, these senses, trained up to discern good from evil. Word trained means ready to go. It's under their control, ready to be used. Well, how do they do this? He says through constant practice. Practice means repeated activity over and over to acquire an ability because you've gained a habit of doing something to the point it's just second nature to you. You can do it from memory. Like an athlete, if any of you played, I'm sure many of you had, the way you got better, you, you had to practice. If you were bad at something, you would practice harder at that. You would try to correct it. He says in the same way here, the spiritually mature, what makes them so spiritually mature? Well, their conscience, their moral compass as a Christian, it's so in tune with the Lord, it's firing on all cylinders because they're using it all the time. They're engaged in good ethical moral decisions before the Lord. They're actively seeking to overcome sin in their lives. The spiritually mature can see evidence of this because they can take in more biblical truth. They're able to handle the solid food. They're able to take in more things from God beyond the basics. But the second thing that we just said is they can see evidence in their life of spiritual maturity because their conscience is very sensitive to sin. They're actively overcoming sin. They have a growing ability to turn down bad and choose the good. So these are the symptoms of lazy spiritual listening to the Lord. If you find yourself in this situation, well, what could you do, though? Well, the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us wondering what we could do. So if you've been sitting there and you're thinking, oh, gee, maybe I have been spiritually dull of hearing. I don't think my conscience is really firing off the way it should. I don't think I could really talk to someone even one-on-one -on -one privately and help them just understand the basics. Well, what should I do? Well, he goes on here. Here's the solution. The solution, he says, is simply grow up. Grow up in spiritual maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Verse 2, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The solution to spiritual maturity, or excuse me, immaturity, the solution to spiritual immaturity because of spiritual laziness of listening is to take action to grow in spiritual maturity. Well, what action do we take? Build on the elementary foundation. So his first point is, how could someone grow up spiritually? It starts with building on that foundation that he mentioned earlier. You can't stay on the foundation. You need to keep going beyond the foundation. He says the, the word leave, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. The word leave means not leave it behind and forget it. He means Leave it sitting there because you've mastered it, you're, you're good with it, you know it, so you can leave it sitting there and you can go on to the next thing, you can advance. Sort of like playing a video game or something and you beat this level, well, you're ready to go to the next level. Anything like that, he's saying it's not leave it behind and forget it, it's leave it behind because we've mastered that. We can go on to the next thing, the higher things. 
but he calls these things the elementary doctrine of Christ. Again, it's like what we said earlier, the basic foundations. He's saying these are the first principles of what it means to know Jesus Christ, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. These are just the foundations, the the elementary principles here. But we need to master these first. Now, once we've mastered these, then you move on to the advanced stuff. The irony is God does this for us. That's the irony. I'll explain that as we go. So I'm saying to you that he's saying we need to grow up. There's something we do. But yet, on the other side of that, God does it for us. He will grow us. He will develop us. So how do, how do the two fit together? So the irony is this, or here's how it works. God will grow you and make you spiritually mature. He will do it by his power and his resources. But how? Well, here's our part. We let him do it. We open our lives up for this to take place. It's a two-sided event. God guarantees your spiritual maturity. He guarantees your spiritual growth. But we take actions that get us on the path to growth. Maturity means completeness here. So God wants to make you more complete to grow you in your knowledge and your ability to serve him and live for him more. Have more of an impact for the kingdom. Grow your your knowledge. I'll touch on that more as we go. But he's going to give us a list here of some examples of these elementary foundation principles here. He says in verse 1, he says, Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So dead works, faith toward God, he mentions. Verse 2, he mentions some more instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now we're about to enter some fun stuff because I'm about to have to admit to you there's a lot I don't know from the book of Hebrews. So, I spent hours and hours studying this, and the next sermon is going to be even more fun if you'll be here next week because we will touch on probably one of the most debated passages of the New Testament about can a real believer fall away from the faith or what's going on with all that. Well, we're not going to do that today because that's too much. But right here is a very interesting list he gives. And I'll give give you a couple of uh, options here and say that it's a pretty good uh, guess as to what he meant exactly, but we can get an idea here. He says there's a few things to notice that are considered foundation when it comes to being in Christ. And the word that in the ESV he says, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It's as if he pairs them together. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And then the second pair is, he says here, instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And then the third pair could be the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So some uh, Bible commentators and scholars see that in this list, it's like he's coupling them together for a purpose. Now, it could be, on the one hand, that he had in mind Jewish Christians. And we've talked about that from verse 1 of of this book. I mean, the book is called Hebrews because it's as if it was written to Jewish Christians, Jews who had converted to Christ. So it is possible that what he's getting at here is some Old Testament stuff that they may have been familiar with. So, for example, he could have meant, look, you guys are used to repenting from those dead works of trying to earn your salvation through keeping the law and animal sacrifices and following a code. You, you could be used to trying to do those things to earn your salvation, but you've repented from that. You've, you've walked away from that. And what have you done? Well, you've put your faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be by washings. Uh, some translations may say baptisms. 
but washings is a good word. He doesn't literally mean baptism like we would think in a baptistry. He means any kind of ceremonial type religious washing or cleansing. So that's a lot of that happens in the Old Testament. They could have been very familiar with the ceremonial washings that the priest had to do and different people had to do to make themselves ritually clean again. Could be referring to that, laying on of hands. Again, lots of imagery there talking about getting someone sort of prepared for an office called by the Lord, laying on of hands, commissioning them off to that thing. So we could say maybe laying on of hands is talking about service to the Lord. Then the, the last pair he mentions resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, again, I say it's possible because I do want to be fair. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. He doesn't directly come out and say, I mentioned these things because I had Jewish Christians in mind and I'm talking about stuff from the Old Testament. Whether he did or he didn't, let me just say this. It still applies to us because all he's getting at is simply this. We need to build on the foundation and advance in our knowledge and ability. Well, what's the foundation? The foundation are things like this right here. Repentance. Have you repented of your sins and turned and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Is that not just simply step one of being a Christian? And you can't really be a Christian if you haven't even put your faith in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. So he just starts there. One of the elementary principles is repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Washing and laying on of hands. I'm not prepared to say that he's literally talking about you have to be baptized or anything like that. But I think he might say in a general fashion, those basic sacramental elements of being a Christian. Jesus himself said in the Great Commission, go and tell all people, make disciples of all nations. And he did say, baptize them. Now I think he meant generically, bring them in the family of God. See to it that that they're putting their faith in Christ. And then, yes, enter them into the family of God through baptism and teach them what it means to be a disciple. So he could just be saying it starts with repentance and faith in the Lord. It starts with baptism and doing the various things that the Bible says are the basic stuff of carrying out your life as a Christian, like the Lord's Supper, things of that nature. He doesn't say that, but I think that could be a right track. And then finally, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Again, basics, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus died, but he rose again. And because he rose again, you too will rise again. And you also know and believe, like in the book Revelation, that God will judge all people both Christians and non. And then he'll judge Christians at sort of a secondary judgment seat on our service. What can we offer before him as crowns, sort of, of how faithful we were in service to him here? Let me step back and then just say in summary fashion, if that was a little confusing, I believe he is just simply saying it starts with getting your foundation as a Christian. Do you understand what it means to have right faith? Do you understand what it means to repent from sin? Do you understand what it means to enter into a church and function with a church, which as Baptists we would believe it's baptism to be in membership and to engage in service. And then do you believe those other foundational elements like we will rise again from the dead and there will be a day of judgment? So he just gives a sample list there. But again, could have been talking to Jews, but doesn't matter. It applies to us as well today, though. So when building a house, you start with a foundation, usually, I would hope. But how silly would it be to build a foundation and then you build another foundation on top of the first foundation and then you build a third foundation on top of the second foundation and then you sit back and say, I think I'm done building this house. That would make no sense whatsoever. You would have no house. You would just have foundation on top of foundation and now you really can't use the house. I mean, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. 
Or you could think of it on the opposite way. Maybe you build a house, you build the foundation, and you just stop. You say, I don't think I need to put the frames up and the sheetrock, and I don't think I need to do any of that stuff. I just like the foundation. This house isn't going to do much for you. It provides you no shelter. You can get no real use out of it. In the same way, he's saying, look, it's good to know the basics you should, but you don't stay there for the rest of your Christian walk. You don't stay at the basics and then keep laying on basics and basics. You grow from that foundational knowledge. So some, some of these people he is writing to, I believe, they must have gotten stuck. I don't know for how long, but I would imagine that some of these people may have been what we would call veteran Christians, veteran church people. Good people, mean well, very involved, but he's looking at them and he's saying, but you've really not grown in 20 years. You're kind of stuck spiritually. Why is that? Because you're, you're lazy of listening. You're not growing. You're not seeking to grow anymore. Now, how does this process really work, though? I said it briefly earlier, but I'll explain a little bit more now. I said it's two-sided. We have a part and God has a part. Look at Hebrews 6.3. Simple phrase. And this we will do if God permits. The this is meaning grow in spiritual maturity, move beyond the elementary principles. That's the this part. But he says that will only happen if who grants permission, if God permits. Well, how does this work, though? Because I thought we had a part and God has a part. Again, it's double-sided. It's not either or. It's not God or us. It's both and. It's God and us in conjunction together. So God promises to grow us spiritually. He already promised to help us understand the advanced things so we can grow up in maturity. But we have to take action to get started on the path. We have to set out and get going, and God carries us to the finish line. I want to give you two biblical examples, I believe, that promote this idea. In Numbers chapter 13, I'll just paraphrase it, but you can read in Numbers chapter 13 the whole story. The 12 spies are sent into the land of Canaan to scope it out. They're to go back and give a report to Moses about, well, what did you see? Does it look like we can take the promised land now? You may remember the story, but two of the 12, Joshua and Caleb, came back, and they're the only two out of all 12 that gave a favorable report to Moses. Ten of them said, we can't do this. The people are like giants there. They have better weapons, better equipment. They're just physically bigger than us. They're stronger than us. We can't do this. Caleb and Joshua said, oh, yes, we can. We can because God has already promised that we will. So all we have to do is go do it. And he's already promised us victory. Another example is from the book of Joshua. And I will read this to you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Moses has died and Joshua takes over, leading Israel. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So I want to pause. Let's look at a few things here. Here's what God just told him. Your mentor's dead. You're in charge now. And you saw how bad they were to that guy. Probably not going to be much better for you but you're my guy. I'm calling you to do this. And here's what he says to Joshua, though. You're going to go over this Jordan River and you will go into the land. And he says this phrase that I am giving to them. So God is speaking to Joshua before they entered the land of Canaan. And he's using terminology that speaks as if it's already a done deal. I've already given you the land. Verse three, 
Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Once again, Joshua, everywhere you and these people go, I've already granted you that land. It's yours. Verse 4, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Again, promises, this is your territory, it's yours. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So now then, the first five verses is very God-sided. God is telling Joshua everything he will do and has already done for him and the people of Israel. He's promised them victory. He's promised the land that they're going to be walking on. He's told Joshua, it's already there, it's yours. But literally, though, at this point, physically speaking yet, they, they don't have it. God's just declared to him, it's as good as yours. But he hasn't gotten it yet. Well, look at verse 6, and it kind of switches to the Joshua side. God says to Joshua, his part is to be strong and courageous. You shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So God swore it's going to happen, but God works through human means often. And he's saying to Joshua, you're, you're the guy. You're the mechanism. You're the vehicle that what I've already promised and what I've already declared is going to happen, it's going to carry out through you, though. So Joshua has a part to play. He goes on in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. Excuse me. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now notice right there what God just told Joshua. I've given you victory, but yet in verse 7, the wording shifts a little And he puts the burden on Joshua because he says to him, Joshua, you need to be strong and courageous. You need to do everything according to the law that I gave Moses. Now Joshua has a part. God doesn't just plop the victory down in his lap. He says, Joshua, if you'll go do what I tell you, it's guaranteed success. But you have to go. You have to set out and do it. And your part is to keep the law that I gave Moses. Obey that law. And he says, you'll have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And again, look at this phrase. For then, so God says to him, if you will absorb and soak in my word, my Bible, Joshua, then something will happen for you. Then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So the Lord is with him wherever he goes. But what does Joshua have to do? Well, he has to go. But wherever he goes, God's already said, I'm I'm with you. And wherever he goes, God's already promised victory. It's done. But Joshua can't just stand there. He has to go. He has to set out on the path that God laid before him. And he has to follow God's word, follow God's ways. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, so now he gives these orders to the people. They're going to do the same. He says, pass through the midst of the camp. Command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So he listened. He carried out those orders through the people. So notice Joshua was promised victory but God, by God, but Joshua had to obey God. So God promised victory on the one hand, but to claim that victory... Joshua had to obey God on the other hand. He had to set out on the journey, 
He had to follow and meditate on God's word. He had to keep it. If Joshua sat back and did nothing, no victory would have happened. Nothing would have happened. I mean, now probably God would have used someone else. But from Joshua's perspective, nothing would have happened. Hebrews is showing us we overcome spiritual laziness. We avoid it by trusting God to grow us, mature us, while we, so our part, while we actively set out on the journey. So back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, this we will do if God permits. And then we read earlier in chapter 5, where he said, lost my place where he said it, but he said in chapter 5 that, I think it was verse 11, verse 12, I have lost my place, I'm so sorry. Okay, verse 14, sorry. He says, those who have their powers of discernment trained by practicing to distinguish good from evil. One of those verbs is active, the person does it, but the other verb is passive. It happens to them. So again, distress two-sided. We do a part, God does a part. So I've heard John Piper say this, and I liked it, so I've, I've adopted it. But John Piper, he's a famous pastor, you may have heard of him. He gave an analogy one time about a ship in a harbor, a ship with sails, and it's sitting in a harbor. It's not moving. And he says that the person is on the ship, so picture the ship is the life of, of the Christian. And they're begging God, God, grow me, make my ship better, make it more effective. Let, let my ship do more for your kingdom. Show me, God, where you want the ship to set sail to. But the ship sits there, doesn't do anything. And John Piper went on to say, what should happen is the ship should just set sail. It, it should just go. It, north, south, doesn't matter. Just get going. And as it is going along, guess what God steps in and does? Maneuvers the already moving ship. And his point was God is typically in the business of maneuvering us where he wants us, growing us in the ways we're supposed to grow as we have already engaged in action. We've already stepped foot out there and gotten started. Rather than sitting back and saying, God, I really, this year in 2023, I want to be better at my Bible reading and my prayer life. Well, how do we do that? You get started. You actually take time every day to read that Bible, to pray every day. And as you do that, you get better. You know, God, help me with fill in the blank, this or that this year. But you and I have to get started. You have to take that first step Get going in the direction and God moves you and maneuvers you to growth, to better effectiveness. So how can you set sail spiritually? Keeping John Piper's ship analogy. How could you set sail spiritually? This isn't from Hebrews. This, this is from some things I've collected over the years from various books. I just want to share with you a list that I really like. So these are usually called spiritual disciplines. And you can find books on the spiritual disciplines. What you could do is start bringing these into your regular daily life. Make them a habit. And if you will, you'll see God begins to take these simple things, but grow them into bigger things, more advanced things. And here's the list. The first one, you could probably guess it, Bible intake. More Bible intake. But why? Because this is the written word of God. And 
we don't have time to flesh that out how we know that. But if you have any questions, ask me. I'd love to explain it. But it is. And if you believe it is, then literally when you and I open up this book, or maybe it's on your phone, and you read it, God is speaking to you from the pages of this. What better reason to read your Bible for that alone? I've heard this said too sometime. I've, I've heard someone say, God, would you speak to me? I would love to hear a voice from heaven. And the response from their pastor was, open your Bible and read the words out loud. And God is speaking to you with a voice. But it's true. This is the words of God. So Bible intake, just get started. Read more of it, take more in, and watch what God will do through your spirit. The next one would be prayer. So the Bible hearing from God, prayer talking to God, two-way communication. More prayer, more dedicated prayer. How could you adopt that? in your daily schedule better. The third one, worship. Now we're here today and we're having a worship service, so I'm glad you're here. But this is something to think about. Am I engaged in regular active worship? Now, how that fleshes out can be both in a church and other places, but am I engaged with regular worship with my church family where we're coming together and worshiping our common Lord and Savior. That's a spiritual discipline. But if someone is not in taking the Bible, their prayer life is basically non-existent, they're involved in worship just a few times here or there, I'm just being blunt. They're not going to be able to expect much, spiritually speaking. Like the writer of Hebrews started out with, you should be farther along, but you're not going to get there because you shut off your spiritual ears. You just haven't put in the effort. The next one would be serving what are some ways God's gifted you that, that you think, you know what, I might could use my talent or ability here and get engaged in serving the church, serving the kingdom of God in that way? Stewardship. Am I being a good steward of the resources God is giving me? Fasting. I'm going to be honest. I, don't, I think maybe I've done this once. I'm just being honest with you. But I was going over this list, and I remember reading this in one of these books, and I thought, you know, I need to do this. Because the author was explaining how I think we, we think fasting was an Old Testament thing. That's something they did. But who knows what God could do in your life if you, you said, God, like maybe just for a day, I'm going to try to fast and focus on praying to you more and depending on you more than for my daily sustenance. Who knows how closer you might feel to the Lord from that. Sharing your faith. This is where we probably all get nervous. You know, I don't know what I would say. I don't know how to you know, share the gospel with someone. Well, but pray about it, though. Have you even thought about it? Have you even thought about this year, a family member or a friend that you know they don't know the Lord and they're on your mind, just start praying, God, would you help me find a right moment and give me the courage to share the truth of Jesus Christ? The last one I'd say is find a trusted spiritual, spiritual mentor. Find a trusted spiritual mentor. Someone that you could say, you know what, they've, they've kind of been through this. They've, they've been walking this Christian life longer than me, but not only in years of time, but I can see it. It's evident that they're growing. Find someone like that that maybe God shares on your heart that you say, you know what, I, I could probably go to them and trust them and say, I, I, I want you to help guide me a little bit. How do you read your Bible? How do you set up your prayer life? What could I do to be growing more like you? So in these ways, this is how we can avoid spiritual laziness. How we can let God grow us this year and beyond. And next week we'll go into two more topics. I pray you'll be here. But this morning, 
I hope, though, that you see spiritual laziness is a real thing, but it needs to be avoided, and it can be avoided. We need to grow spiritually, open ourselves up to let God grow us. Um, This morning, I'll be down here, and I just want to invite you. I'll have a word of prayer in a moment. And when I do, Bruce and them will come up, and we'll just have a brief time of invitation. But I don't stress this enough, and I want to, but the word invitation is intentional. I like that word. So in this song, this is an invitation. It could be in your pew, or you could come down here, you could get me, Brother Michael's here. This is an invitation for you to say, maybe today before I leave, maybe, number one, I just need to know Jesus Christ, because that's where it started. Do I know Christ? Am I one of Christ? I belong to Him. And if so, then today, square it with the Lord. i got to get started on that path, God, to growing spiritually. Show me, Lord, what I need to do to be more effective this year for your kingdom. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins, to give us hope of eternal life, so that we can even have a reason to come and worship and do what we're doing here this morning. Jesus, would you show each of us, starting with me, as a church family, how we can be more spiritually effective, how we can grow spiritually together as a church, how we can grow closer to you, grow in both our our knowledge and our service. God, if someone's here that does not know you, they have questions or they're confused, God, would you give them the courage today to ask those questions and say, I need to know how to know Christ. Your son's name I pray. Amen.